Well, indeed, we've been making our way through the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. And we're looking at how did the early church, church get formed? How did it grow? What were some of the conversations, some of the activities uh, that they were doing? But as we're studying Acts, I want to encourage you not just to look at it as this history lesson. Don't look at it as some ancient book, but actually look at it as an unfolding of the present reality. Look at it as how God wants to work in and through us today, just like he was working in and through the people 2,000 years ago. You see, not only do we see the activity of the early church, we see the activity of the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about just a couple of weeks ago. We're seeing how the person and the work of the Holy Spirit empowered the believers to take the message to faraway places. So don't read it as some nostalgic or sentimental picture of what the church used to be, the good old days, what the church should be now. Look at it as an opportunity, as a new future for what it would look like for us as a church to then participate in the mission of God through his spirit in our own lives. And so Acts begins where the gospel of Luke ends. Remember that Acts was written by Luke, the same author. He was a physician. In Acts 1, we see that Jesus had appeared to his disciples for 40 days. He told his disciples, though, don't start the ministry yet. They needed to wait. They needed to wait for the Spirit to come and to give them the power. Acts 1, 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see that Jesus ascended into heaven, and the disciples waited. And then we read in Acts chapter 2, describe the events of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on these believers, gave them the ability to worship God in a new language. And as they were praising God in these languages, we see that crowds are coming, trying to understand and make sense of what is happening. And Peter steps up, and Peter preaches his very first sermon. He tells them the truth about themselves, how they are sinners, how they are broken, how they crucified this Jesus, but he offered them a pardon. He said, Jesus is not dead. He has risen and he is alive. So you need to repent. You need to believe and you need to be baptized. And we see that 3,000 people responded in saving faith that day. They begin to gather together daily, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and they gave generously and joyfully to anyone who was in need. You see, the gospel demands a response. And then we saw and we talked last week, Tony showed us a picture of where these events were happening at the Temple Mount. And we read how Peter and John were walking to the temple for a time of prayer, and there was the, a man who was crippled, who was laying there begging for money. He asked Peter and John to spare some change, and Peter's response was that, by the na- we don't have money, but by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, be healed. So the man is healed. He rejoices. He's jumping up and down. And we see again that these crowds begin to appear and try to understand what is happening. And so once again, Peter steps right up, and he says, I'm going to preach to them. He saw it as an opportunity to tell them about the gospel of Jesus. And the second sermon was very similar to the first, which is an encouragement because it's the very same gospel that we speak today. So that brings us to Acts chapter 4. And once again, we're going to see how people respond when the gospel message is presented because once again, it demands a response. 
If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from Acts 4, verses 1 through 22, and it will be on the screens for you as well. It says, while Peter and John were busy, uh, were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. The leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead. They arrested them. And since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priests. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, don't miss this part, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? <laughs> Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. I know that's a long text, but I wanted to give you the full story in one snapshot. And then I want to break that down piece by piece to tell you and to tell me how we can learn from this example today. A man who was not able to walk is now able to walk. And Peter is preaching and telling the crowd, saying that he and John did not do this, but only through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. This very man who had been crucified in this very city just a few months ago, that man was the one who had been resurrected from the dead and had healed this man. Peter was asking the crowd once again to repent, to put their faith in Jesus. And that's what happened out in the crowd. But I want you to see the scene as it begins to intensify inside. So while many people are receiving these words, not everyone is liking what Peter and John are saying. We're told in verses 1 and 2 that the priests, 
the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees confronted Peter and John as they were preaching, greatly disturbed. They were teaching that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. Now Sadducees, if you don't know much about this group of people, is a very small group, but very influential, important religious elites who were in charge of some of the Jewish laws and customs, some of the priestly duties. They were tasked from Rome to make sure that what was being taught and preached was actually jiving with their Jewish faith and their Jewish customs. And so for the fact that Peter and John were preaching that there was a resurrection from the dead was going completely against what they believed. We've talked about the Pharisees before, the hypocrites that Jesus called. Those are the ones who sent Jesus to trial and Jesus to his crucifixion. But these Sadducees, they didn't believe that Jesus raised from the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in some of those other spiritual things that we believe today. So because they were political and religious elites, they felt they had great power and authority and assert that authority against anyone who was speaking. Together they brought about rule and order. And what they were seeing was directly out of line with what they believed. So we see Peter and John getting arrested. And I, I want to just take a step back and think about and put, in, put myself in their shoes about what they were going through. Right? Because Jesus, when he was on earth, he warned them. He said, guess what? The world hated me, and they are going to hate you as well. But not only that, not only that, the entire atmosphere was made to make them afraid, made to make them fearful, made to, to assert authority and dominance over them. I want to see how they respond. But first we get this verse, verse 4, that's a little bit out of, out of order in my opinion, but it gives us so much context to the rest of the story. It says, but many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. So we have this wave of opposition that is coming towards this message, this gospel message that Peter and John are preaching. And Peter is, is, is telling his sermon, is preaching to the crowds. And we see that these officials are coming in and arresting him and dragging him off stage. I wanted to give you a picture of what that looked like. So officers, no, I'm not going to do that today. But could you imagine I'm up here preaching? I'm, I'm telling you about this risen Lord. I'm, I'm speaking this message to you. And I'm being dragged off the stage and I'm saying, believe, repent, be baptized. And then somehow 2,000 plus more people come to know Jesus? That is evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work. Because no matter what opposition we face here on earth, we have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Wherever the gospel of Jesus is faithfully proclaimed, there will always be men and women who receive that message and turn towards Jesus. But there will also always be opposition. People who are offended by the idea that they need a savior. People who are offended that they need to be saved. And people, no matter what time or what year, will seek to marginalize and persecute or destroy people that would present that type of ideology. And that's exactly what we saw happening in our passage. But that's also what we see in our world today. 
when the gospel is faithfully preached and proclaimed, people are going to take notice. Some will respond in saving faith, while others will respond with rejection and animosity and hostility to the message and to those who are bringing it. John 15, 18, as I said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Before Jesus left, he prepared his followers to be hated. But it's interesting, he didn't hope that they would be whisked away to heaven and not have to deal with trials like this. He prays that they would be kept from evil, but he prays that the sanctifying truth of God would set them apart. And just like he was sent from the Father with the message, they would be sent as missionaries, as witnesses of the gospel too. Remember, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we too are sent out into the world as ministers of the gospel. So how did the early church, how did they truly respond to this kind of hatred? Acts 4, 5 says, The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Clearly a scene of power and intimidation. We know this council is named the Sanhedrin Council. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, other relatives. We get a sense of who were the individuals who were there. We know the Sanhedrin was a council made up of 71 members that were seated amphitheater style. Standing up, sitting in rounds where they could see and gauge one another's response. They brought in these rule violators, these lawbreakers, and they put them on trial. Remember, this was the same group who tried Jesus as well. So you can imagine what Peter and John are going through as they're walking the same steps that Jesus walked. Wonder if they thought that their fate was going to be the same as Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we can say this was a legitimate question that the Sanhedrin was asking. By what power and whose name have you done this? Remember, they were keepers and guardians of the Jewish faith. So they were naturally concerned about what was being taught on the Temple Mount. But on the other hand, this question was a subtle and deadly trap. Because they, if they had contributed the healing of the man to any power other than Jehovah, they could have been stoned to death. So we're setting it up. It's a pay-per-view. The showdown with the Sanhedrin. Peter and John, these two individuals in this powerful ruling authority. Heading to the same place Jesus was. And I wonder what they were doing in prison that night. I wonder if they were together in the same cell. I wonder if they were separated. I wonder if they were praying to God and asking for power through the Holy Spirit. I wonder if they were seeing it as an opportunity to share the faith. I wonder if they were terrified. I wonder if they slept at all. I'm trying to put myself in their shoes because I know there's some sort of resemblance of me and you in this story. But I think what they were doing is preparing themselves to be a vessel used by God. Verse 8, we see Peter's response. If you have a Bible, highlight, circle, underline, whatever you need to do. These first seven words of verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. 
The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Come on, Peter. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. We see Peter boldly proclaiming, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. See, first he reasons with them, like, why is it so bad that this man is healed? Then he's saying, no, all the glory goes to Jesus. It's not belong to me. And then we see it turn on him, on them. And he's saying, not only does the power and glory belong to Jesus, but the very Jesus that you refused, the very Jesus that you rejected, this imagery in verse 11, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone that comes from Psalm 118. This was powerful language that cut to their heart. They knew exactly what he was saying, that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The very tone of Peter's reply shows that he was not intimidated by this court. Even though, humanly speaking, he had every right to be. See, Peter was nowhere near the scene when Jesus was being crucified, right? He was running away. The very same Peter that had denied three times to the servant girl and to the crowds that he knew Jesus the very same Peter who had so greatly failed in our eyes was the very same Peter who was preaching to this powerful Sanhedrin council, not knowing what his fate was going to be. What was the difference? Remember verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. There's the difference. You want to know how he went from this to this? It's the Holy Spirit. No other substitute. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy recorded in Luke 12, where it says, And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. And so we see the council. <laughs> it's a little bit of a disruption to them, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection, but Peter and John are preaching about this resurrection power I wonder how they were responding, what they were thinking, what they were saying. See, Peter also didn't mention that Jesus was a way to salvation. He was preaching that he was the only way to salvation. There was no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Now, once again, our world and their world hated statements like this. Hard to accept, hard to accept for many. But it is plainly stated, this is the gospel. If you want to be laughed at or scorned or hated or persecuted, make statements like this. Instinctively, we, me included, think all the time, isn't there some other way that I could be saved? That I could control my destiny in life and my future, my eternity? Isn't Jesus just for those weak people who can't save themselves? Well, yeah, that's the whole point. As a matter of fact, whether we know it or not, we are all those weak people. We are incapable of saving ourselves. We are weak, and we relish in the fact that he is strong. We are not the savior of ourselves or of others. So if you're going to be rescued, made right with God, saved from sin, there's no other way than through Jesus Christ. 
a continual filling from the Holy Spirit. What was the Sanhedrin's reaction to this? They had to be uncomfortable. They had to be uncomfortable because the gospel demands a response. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. The word amazed there, the council was amazed, comes from the Greek root thalma, which means to evoke an emotional response, to wonder at, to be amazed by, to be astonished by. They were emotionally moved by the miracle, but not by the gospel message. Why? They were getting in their own way. They were too busy worried about the rules and the laws. They were too busy worrying about being the guardians of the faith instead of surrendering to Jesus. How remarkable is it that Peter and John are described as ordinary men, no special training, but as men who had been with Jesus? Maybe we can think about people in our life who could say that. That's not to downplay any sort of training in the scriptures. In fact, I would think we should be well trained in the scriptures. But ordinary men, nothing necessarily special about them, but the boldness that comes through the Holy Spirit. See, they were walking with Jesus, experiencing life with him. It was apparent that they had been with Jesus. But that doesn't mean that because we're not with Jesus physically that we're not with him daily. See, it's not about being good people or being good Christians apart from Jesus, but our life is about experiencing life with him, both this life and the eternal, the ups and the downs, the ever-changing circumstances, the mix of emotions. We're on the road with Jesus. When we're going through a hard time, we're journeying with Jesus. We know that Jesus is beside me, in front of me, behind me, and with me. They had been with Jesus, and we too can be with Jesus. Peter is saying, the very person that you crucified, the man that you killed, that you thought was dead, healed this man. And the Sanhedrin don't know what to say. They couldn't think of what to say. They had no response. Even the witty and the cynical Caiaphas, who had previously sealed Christ's death, had said in John 11, verse 50, it's better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. That's what he said about Jesus being crucified. He had no idea what to say now. Verse 15, they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with, this men, with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign. And everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in the name of Jesus again. Overwhelmed by the embarrassing silence, they dismissed the apostles so they could discuss the situation. Now you may be wondering, how in the world does Luke know what they are talking about? Was there some sort of scribe or some sort of person who was taking notes and sending them out? Well, if we read further in Acts 26.10, I'm sure we'll get to this. It gives us reason to believe that a person of the Sanhedrin, one of the Sadducees, was actually going to become a Christian. Acts 26.10 says that Paul 
at the time known as Saul, was a member of the Sanhedrin to cast his vote against early Christians. And if this is true, we could say that Peter and John had no idea that they were speaking and preaching to a future apostle and perhaps the greatest missionary the church would ever see. An example of the truth that we have no idea how greatly God can use us. So I imagine the Sanhedrin as they're trying to muster up some sort of response. They're trying to, to get together, okay, what, what should we say to them? You see, it would be much easier for them just to go back to status quo, just to go back to their priestly duties, just go back to their temple court thing, and let's just, let's just go back to the way that we were living prior. They didn't want to be disrupted by this. They certainly didn't want Rome to know about these disruptions. They didn't want to be held accountable. Let's just pretend nothing's happened. But I don't know if they can do that because the rest of Jerusalem is starting to take notice. As we read, 5,000 men are now believers, not to mention how many women and children might be believers. Let's threaten them. Let's just demand that they don't speak anymore to anyone in Jesus' name. So they called the apostles in, verse 18, they called the apostles in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everyone, every, about everything we have seen and heard. Peter is saying right here, you guys are going to have to deal with what I just shared with you. He doesn't just go ahead and cower down once they give him some command to go away. He's saying you have to respond to that. I don't know about you. This is Peter. I just see him saying this. I don't know about you, but my life has been changed forever. I have been transformed. I can't help but share it with anyone that I'm around. If I was concerned about man's approval, then sure, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say, but I can't do that. I can't go back to my life the way it was before. I have been awakened to the glory of God in a way that has forever changed me. I can't go back to the status quo. I can't go back to the way things used to be. The gospel has changed everything for Peter. And he's tasting it and he's seeing it and he wants to experience it in all of his life. So we see how the text ends, verse 21 and 22. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. They just can't land on how they're going to punish them. <laughs> they don't know how to make sense of this. They don't know how to draw the line. They just don't like it. And instead of pressing into it and pressing into their own hearts and coming to terms with who Jesus is, they just continue to push it away. Say, hey, Peter, John, we're going to punish you. I, I promise we are. I'm just not sure how to do it yet, but we're going to do it. You better stop. There's such a loss for words. There are people who are grasping to hold on to whatever control they feel like they can have, any kind of security that they feel like they need. And all the while, people around them are experiencing this radical change and heart transformation who have had their eyes awakened to Jesus Christ. They've seen this and they've heard this with their own eyes and ears. See, that same thing is what happens when you and I come to faith in Jesus. You're forever changed. And it's our hope, for those of us who are Christians, that we have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Peter and John had, and his job is to put the spotlight on Jesus, 
to help us walk and follow Christ, not just in the ways that we're comfortable or the ways that we're used to or that we're safe or secure. It's an invitation to an experience of radical transformation. As we follow Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, this opportunity to follow him on a journey that the gospel message is being spread no matter what it costs, no matter if it's a night in prison or threats or punishment or hatred in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These Jewish leaders were completely unmoved by the power of God, yet they responded to public opinion. It proves that they cared far more about man's opinion than God's. The whole situation for Peter and John started out looking so bad. Peter and John were on trial before the same court that sent Jesus to Pilate for his crucifixion. It was meant for great power and great evil, but when it was over, see what God did. 2,000 more people came to believe in Jesus. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit again. Peter got to preach Jesus to the leaders of the Jews. Hostile examiners confirmed a miraculous healing. The enemies of Jesus were confused. Peter and John were bolder for Jesus than ever before, and God was glorified. All of that. So what does this mean for us sitting here 2,000 years later? Sure, it's a great story, but it's so much more than that. Let's consider the implications for each of us. First, the gospel demands a response from every person who ever lives. And I have got to imagine that in this room there is at least one person who has not made that declaration. I've got to believe there's one person in this room who hasn't taken that step of faith today to say, Jesus, I call on you to save me. I want to repent. I want to believe. I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. We've been praying for you, if that's you today, to make that step, to make that profession of faith to come forward and say, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. And I hope that there's someone in this room today that will make that claim. But for those of us who call ourselves Christians, let us not stand on the sideline and say, I don't have that, that great authority or that great power to, to speak in the name of Jesus. Well, guess what? You don't have it. You never did. That belongs to the Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Peter and John is the same Spirit who is in each one of us who call on Jesus. So we should expect that when we do speak up, we're going to face some opposition. We should expect people to challenge our beliefs, and we shouldn't get discouraged when that opposition comes. We should be ready to defend our faith in Jesus. And that may look different than what Peter and John faced, other disciples faced. But we should expect that there will be some opposition when we stand up. Jesus said as he was preparing to leave this earth that it was good that he left so that the Spirit would come and dwell with his believers. So today I just ask you, have you made that profession of faith? If you haven't, I want you to take that opportunity today to do so. I want this to be your day. I would love to help you take that step of faith today. And if you have already made Jesus the object of your faith, are you living boldly with courage for him? Are you sharing his truth with everyone around you? If not, is it because you haven't been with Jesus lately? You can make that change today. One of the things that I'm most excited about in my new role 
as minister of connections and outreach is to walk with people on their journey and to encourage them to take those steps of faith. On Wednesday nights in our group, we've been talking about how do we grow in our faith. And one of the conclusions that we've come to is that we can't do that alone. We must make it a priority to get in the word, to pray regularly, to be connected with other believers for support and encouragement. And I want to help you find that community of believers if you don't have that. We have groups of all sizes that would love to welcome you into their rhythm of gathering and encouraging one another. But before you leave today, whether it's a decision to put your faith in Jesus for the very first time, or a decision to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and the decision to make a stand for Jesus, and to share Jesus with those around you, there's going to be people up here who would love to pray with you for boldness and courage. Pray with you to make those steps of faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time together to study the scriptures, to see the example of Peter and John, these people that we believe as these titans of faith. Jesus, you called Peter that he, you were going to build his church on him. You called him a rock. Yet just a few months before, he was denying you, Father. God, we can have that life transformation too when we put our faith in Jesus. Whether we've been coming to faith for the first time for a long time or whether we have been a Christian for a long time and we've kind of been dormant, I pray, God, you would activate something inside of us. That would be the Holy Spirit that would give us the boldness and the courage to step out in faith. God, today we wouldn't leave this room without making some sort of decision, some sort of response to the gospel, God, because that's what it deserves. It deserves a response. Father, I pray now that we would spend these next few moments focused on you, praising and worshiping you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.